What's happening to China? Fears are rising about China's economic slowdown. The property market had been a key growth engine, but its momentum is waning, which has led to turmoil. For so long, China has been the engine of global growth, but now it's in trouble. In the last week alone, Tokyo has overtaken Shanghai as Asia's biggest equity market. India's valuation premium over China has also hit a record. The country's stock market is in meltdown, and it has long-term challenges. To name a few: a population crisis, strained relations with its key trading partners in the West, a downtrend in its property market, as well as major internet companies. So, what does this all mean, and how concerned should the rest of us be? On this episode of Put Simply, we look at the troubles behind the world's second-largest economy. My name is Erdem Koch, and I'm Ozan Ibrahim. Welcome to Put Simply. Put Simply is a podcast brought to you by Aroka, a global boutique consultancy firm providing services across public policy, media, and training. On last week's episode of Put Simply, we looked at the results of the Iowa caucuses in the United States and what it means for that country's presidential elections. Our guest was U.S. political consultant and commentator Matt Klink. It will be the best show in town、um, to just to watch what's going to happen because anybody who says they know what's going to happen, I mean, it's easy to say Trump v. Biden, but there will be so many twists and turns in the road. It's going to be. It will make for great political theater for people like us. It will be a must-see TV. If you missed it, be sure to check it out on your favorite podcasts platform. This week on Put Simply, we're chatting all things China. Put simply, what is happening to the world's second largest economy? The headlines are telling us that the U.S. and other economies are in recovery, that we've avoided recession and had a soft landing. However, the headlines are not so kind to China's economic performance. So we want to cut through the noise and understand what is actually going on in China. To help us do this, we are joined by Julian Williamson. He is an investment manager and Aroka Group advisor. He joins us from Atlanta, where he's currently based. Julian, welcome to Put Simply.、Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, so I was born in Hong Kong, lived in London,、uh, and then went to school in Los Angeles. Um, and eventually moved back to Hong Kong, where I'm、uh, an investment manager and an advisor at Roker、uh, Consulting Group. I, I guess my specialty is in bridging the gap between the East and West、uh, through leading investment activities in the U.S. and China.、Um, and you know, I, I, I like to believe I have a deep knowledge of China's economy and the government's、uh, economic policies. But we'll see how that、uh, plays out when I answer these questions. Thank you, Julian.、Um, it's hard to miss the doom and gloom headlines about China's worsening economy. Could you put simply for us what's actually going on? Is it really that bad? Well, you're correct in saying that every headline about China is certainly doom and gloom, and it is very hard to avoid. You're right.、Um, however, the slowing economy and whether it is really that bad depends on the perspective and time horizon. I don't have 2020 vision, but with certain conditions, I do need glasses. For example, when I drive at night, I need glasses to see the road signs and exit signs due to my stigmatism.、Um, so let me try and answer these questions with a different lens. So China's economy has been slowing, which is a fact, relative to its credit boom period of roughly nine percent GDP growth year on year since the 90s. 
And this is for a few different reasons, some domestic, some global, such as, you know, the COVID, the dreaded COVID and the continued trade war. But uh, to answer this simply, I would say that China is transitioning. You mentioned transitioning there, Julian. So what is China actually transitioning to? Or perhaps I can ask the question this way. In terms of the economic headwinds that it's facing, what is it exactly? And why are we seeing big companies such as big property companies and internet companies going under? Great question. Looking at China's economy, right? um, We've gone from an you know, primary sector to the secondary sector, and now touching upon the services. Um, The property bubble is essentially the headwind um, that encompasses everything that's going on with the Chinese economy. Um, You know, the property bubble is certainly challenging China's growth due to its direct impact it has had on GDP through its vast connections across the verticals, whether it's, you know, upstream, downstream with, you know, consumption, cement, um, um, uh, property management, um, to sentiment. Um, but let's keep, let's go back to the facts. Like China's economy is 18% of the global, global GDP. And the property is a large factor of China's economy, especially with its linkages to the provincial governments. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the upstream steel and cement and consumption, yes, We're starting to see property developers such as Evergrande, Country Garden, defaulting on their onshore and offshore bond commitments. But I think there's more to be said about this. You know, the Chinese property market provided the largest ever credit boom in China. Non-financial debt to GDP grew tremendously. Like real estate debt is part of that. And this provided China's historic 9% GDP growth historically since the 90s. Property bubbles and bursts historically leave a sour taste, right? Given the experiences we've had, especially in the most recent 2008 subprime crisis, let alone other experiences in Europe and in Asia. This being said, let me first answer the why. The Chinese government is very aware of the current real estate problem, hence why they have been targeting them for the last few years, even prior to these headlines in an attempt to transition the real estate market. The Chinese government has been trying to tackle the speculative pressures and oversupply in the sector for some time now. This is not new. And let me talk about the business model of these property developers, which has caused such an issue for the Chinese economy and uh, for the CCP leadership. Um, So although it's caused a massive credit boom, there's also an issue with that on the flip side, right? The immense growth of China has uh, started becoming a issue because, you know, the practices of these property developers were regarding pre-sale purchases. It was the name of the game, pre-sale purchases, where essentially provincial and local governments use the system for their revenue streams with the help of property developers. Um, and so, you know, don't get me wrong, a lot of local governments, there was a lot of corruption and Xi Jinping and the Chinese CCP wanted to, you know, essentially revamp this. Uh, these local governments uh, would essentially repurpose agricultural land and, you know, sell it to these property developers for private property land, quote, unquote, private, right? Everything's still owned by the Chinese government. But this was a large revenue stream for local and provincial governments where there was a lot of corruption that was rampant. Where we're at now, this process has hurt growth and sentiment across the verticals of the sectors, which I mentioned earlier, 
which has been exacerbated by the COVID and the trade wars. Typically, you have historical property bubbles. We'll see bank collapse after a collapse of a real estate sector using a Western lens, which in turn causes whole economies to implode, right? So we're looking at 2008. We're applying those kind of apples to apples to what's happening in China. But that's you know not the case because this Western lens does not acknowledge the structural differences which the CCP is attempting to work through this debt. First of all, Chinese banks are state controlled, which presents a slightly more secured system, some could say. If one believes China can support the sector if need be, you know, I'll elaborate later, but for example, down payments for a second or additional properties in China requires a down payment of 70%. And in China, this is mostly paid for in cash, which means households are not overly leveraged. So we shouldn't see a wave of foreclosures like we did in previous real estate bubbles and crashes. Let me, let me give you a statistic of you know, the Chinese households. Chinese households save 30% of their household incomes. The homeowner rate in China is 80%. They most own their houses. 65% of households in China, their balance sheets are either in property or bank deposits. So yes, sentiment is dampened, but I don't believe there is a larger crisis with regards to the secondary market, meaning uh, homeowners uh, defaulting or selling down to levels where we'll see a quote-unquote crisis. Um, it's mainly on the developer end, and the Chinese government has been trying to proactively uh, transition that. Very interesting. One of the things, I mean, you mentioned a number of, of different data points. Um, we understand that unemployment levels, um, particularly youth unemployment, have increased significantly. Um, and we understand that until recently, the government had stopped releasing figures um, uh, <laughs> under the guise of, uh, of updating the, the methodology. And there's also some concern amongst some economists that re the recently released GDP growth may not be fully reliable. Should we be concerned about the information giving us the full picture of what actually is going on in China? Um, yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so yeah, I was even shocked when we started to see, you know, f a delay of the youth unemployment numbers uh, uh, being released um, after the NPC meeting. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Um, but after doing a bit more of a dive into it, whether or not you agree with my perspective, um, but you know, there's reason for it. Because as I said, China's economy has been transitioning and a transitioning economy, therefore the methodologies have to transition and adjust accordingly. Let me put some numbers out there. So in 2023, for example, like we saw 11.6 million graduates, university graduates from China. That's up from 6.2 million in 2012, for example, give or take. So it was basic arithmetic with a transitioning economy, that these, these methodologies have to change. However, let's focus on how does it impact the actual economy. We've seen a massive urbanization of China's population, both the accelerated urbanization and the growth of the manufacturing sector from the agricultural has redefined China's methodologies, right? So let alone the growths we have seen in the tech and service-based industries. Amongst the backdrop of the multifactored slowdown and crackdowns on certain industries for restructuring the expansion of companies, 
has not kept pace with the increased skilled labor market. So yes, there is a problem, um, but that will hopefully get worked out as new innovative sectors get built. And I'm sure you've all heard about Tangping, which is lying flat in China, where some youths are deciding to remain at home. However, whether or not this is a indirect positive um, is with China's historic one-child policy, which has recently been changed to two and then now three children, up to three children. But the one-child policy has actually helped this situation because look, let, let's look at the United States. Like, for example, I, I was reading through Bloomberg Intelligence with roughly 45% of people ages between 18 to 29 are living at home with their families in the United States. This is the highest figure since the 1940s. More than 60% of Gen Zers and millennials reported moving back home in the past two years, according to this uh, Bloomberg poll, often because of the financial challenges. So here's the thing. In, in China, you know, with the one-child policy and with these stable you know, savings in their household incomes, uh, you know, it's not as bad as it would be elsewhere. However, yes, the main point that we have is with these recent crackdowns on certain sectors of the economy, um, there needs to be an ample push to create new job creation, which is no longer purely uh, infrastructure-based of, of, of putting people with hard hats and uh, building new properties around China. So we have to transition into more high-skilled uh, labor positions and that's what I foresee China's uh, focus is right now. You mentioned that China is 18% of the world's total GDP. So given the picture you've painted for us, Julian, what does it mean for the global economy overall? Are economists and experts right to be worried? Yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, but again, perspective is key here. Uh, if the global economy is fearful of China's growth in new sectors and industries and this transition that it's going through, uh, what would that mean for other nations' production prospects and in turn growth? With the backdrop of dealing with a stock market sell-off, property bubble, currency depreciation with the renminbi, uh, U.S. and Western, you know, whether you want to call it hostility through sanctions, tariff restrictions. Xi Jinping has advocated for growth in industry, manufacturing, technology, instead of the previous real estate growth model. So he's transitioning where the predominant growth model for China's GDP was real estate. He's trying to transition that into these other sectors that I mentioned. But let's put it this way. China's trade surplus okay, has increased from 10 years ago to 30 billion to 75 billion a month, okay, 10 years ago, because its export basket is expanding and transitioning. So not only, we're starting to see the numbers. China used to export certain amount of goods, which fell into this basket, and now they're transitioning into the technology side, the manufacturing side, and other industrial uh, 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 products, such as, for example, China is one of the largest uh, auto exporters. Uh, they have a dominance in the electric vehicle space. There's also Chinese cars made in Mexico right now, which are exported to the United States. There's railways, power plants, turbines, which China really dominates its exports. 
However, what it means for China's economy depends on the amount of demand from the global economy. So it's a chicken and the egg. Although we have seen more frequent tariffs and trade limits in the headlines, this is my view. Uh, uh, you know, these tariffs and trade limits are counterintuitive to China's growth. And it, it, it's, it's, it's like bouncing a ball off a wall and the global economy. So China is aware that these global changes are evolving and are pursuing policies to help spur up domestic consumption as well. If, and this is a big if, China can do this correctly, this would be the tipping point of the transition of China's economy. Let's, let's, let's put it in the context of the United States, right? Um, you know, we're talking about global growth and China's slowdown. Let's look at the U.S. The, all stages of credit card delinquencies has jumped higher during the third quarter of last year surpassing pre-pandemic levels for the first time, according to the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia. You know, there's also auto car payment delinquencies in the United States. Um, so that with the backdrop of where I mentioned earlier, where you know Chinese household income, uh, where they say 30%, um, and their you know, houses are paid for, they're not heavily leveraged, um, they have to put down a down payment of 70%, and they've often paid up in cash, the households are quite, they're, they're in a comfortable position relative to other parts of the world. It's very difficult to have a conversation about China, obviously, without the geopolitical aspect. Julian, put simply, are these economic challenges driving the political challenges in the South China Sea and with Taiwan that we've been hearing about quite a bit? Yeah, we just had the elections in Taiwan with the DPP as the victors, right? Uh, the expense of the CCP's, uh, you know, kind of vote uh, slash nod. Um, the CCP would have obviously preferred the pro-China KMT opposition to have been elected. But, you know, Taiwan is a sore topic for China. As I, I, I like to call Taiwan China's missing puzzle. The CCP came into power with its goal to rejuvenate and reunite the whole of China. Some could argue it has done so successfully apart from that one missing piece. And if you've ever, you know, I've, I've played, you know, I've, I've played the puzzles with my niece and nephew. And when you lose that last piece, you get incredibly frustrated, uh, right or wrongly. Um, but Taiwan uh, for China is an emotional factor. Uh, this being said, as history goes, no one goes to war without counting the costs, right? I don't think even with the threats to Taiwan from the mainland with, you know, the missiles, warships and fighter jets, we could see conflict actually break out, at least emanating from China, because there's simply too much to lose to the, for them. You know, Taiwan, through its TSMC, contributes to 90% of semiconductor exports globally. China imports roughly 33% of Taiwan's exports. Any outright conflict or war would not be conducive to the Chinese regime or global trade for that matter. Like, you know, I was, I think Bloomberg Intelligence puts the cost of the world economy uh, with any kind of conflict at $10 trillion, if this would be the case. And I don't think the Western counterparts would also be too pleased with boots on the ground. And so to answer this, I think follow the chips. How does China deal with all these challenges, Julian, in the context of its aging population that we keep hearing about? It, it, it's funny that we have this question about the aging population. And on the other side, we have youth unemployment. So, you know, long story short, like the youth unemployment should fill these holes. But let me elaborate a little bit more. 
the aging population is again a repercussion or result of China's historic one-child policy, which is which it has amended. And yes, this provides its challenges to the able workforce as the country's demographics obviously change. This again is part of the transition. Although this is more of a problem with China needing to focus on providing more healthcare opportunities for these elderly, nursing homes and retirement homes, along with uh, a more stringent and advanced wealth management and insurance services to prevent you know, too much strain on the healthcare system uh, that China has currently. And uh, with these wealth management services would help spur the efficient transfer of wealth from generation to generation. On the flip side, with the previous question, you have larger graduate numbers in China uh, that can fill these holes. Julian, as, as the famous quote goes, in the midst of crisis lies great opportunity. Where do you see the opportunities or, or the bright sparks for China and, uh, and the world economy out of all of this? I think I've touched upon some of the sectors uh, in the previous questions, but you know, I think aerospace, auto, predominantly electric vehicles, solar, um, other power, uh, nuclear power, railways, um, but I also see a need for more service-based industries. And this for me, I would say the healthcare, also with the growing disposable incomes, um, there is more of a need for private healthcare. So even in you know the UK, for example, we have the NHS, but still people that are slightly more affluent still prefer private healthcare. And so we're starting to see China edge into that side uh, uh, of its growing economy where its people in the middle classes are demanding more services. And that's where I see a growth spark. If one has the perspective that China is able to maneuver out of this transitioning economy successfully, uh, then we can return to the quote that, quote, uh, I, I believe it's Jamie Dimon, uh, uh, said China's uninvestable with regards to its stock market uh, in China and Hong Kong. But, you know, so if you're taking a macro view, taking more of a Buffett route, where, you know, this is pre-COVID, where everyone's chasing fast returns, whether it's in the crypto market, they want 30%. No one's happy with a per annum growth of three to 6% anymore, which even then it's, you know, due to inflation. Um, so let me put this in the context. The Hansing index is eight times PE. And then although there are headwinds and continued challenges for the second largest economy in the world, I believe China is unavoidable, not uninvestable, given everything I said earlier about the, the interconnectivity of its economy. It's 18% of the global GDP. This being said, it, it depends on your time horizon. As I said, Warren Buffett, right? Um, you know, people like to quote him because he's a value investor and he, he has a long-term time horizon. Uh, but nowadays, I feel like you know, people in the industry are, you know, too short-sighted and want quick returns, um, and they're chasing returns. Uh, sentiment is at its lowest level is seen, and ultimately it wouldn't hurt to have some allocation to the region. This being said, it depends on how burned you have been in China and Hong Kong, which I obviously have been, but if I can hold for five, 10 years, I think uh, that allocation would uh, do me well.
you've made a really good case for the Chinese economy transitioning. We want you to get out your crystal ball, Julian, um, and tell us where you think the Chinese economy is going to be in the next 10 years. <laughs> I, I, I like that you mentioned crystal ball because um, only fools say they can predict the future. So I don't want to be one, nor do I want to disappoint you by not answering. So I, I can humbly provide my thoughts with the assumption that there are no black swans leading up to this period in the next 10 years, such as a, another massive war breaking out or the global economy retracts into more isolationist policies. But the, I'll try and answer this based on the premise that globalization, at least the current remnants of it exist. I see China transitioning into its next phase of growth, along with the continued growth in household disposable incomes, which will in turn provide for an increased emphasis in the Chinese service industry, um, the service sector, to contribute to GDP through the expansion of domestic consumption, rather than its traditional you know, model of real estate. Uh, this would bring you know uh, a larger emphasis on wealth management, private healthcare, and also travel and tourism domestically and internationally. Uh, China has a skilled workforce. Ultimately, the infrastructure and innovative drive to expand its new growth engines, but this does hinge on the effectiveness and efficiency of the leadership of the CCP. Um, but I think you know if I was going to put my chips on a prediction, I would say it would be this. Uh, I think the lead up to the next 10 years will also place a much larger role uh, on the Chinese renminbi with regards to global trade. Uh, since the IMF's addition of the currency to the global SDR basket of currencies, we're starting to see the renminbi used even more. Even within the last couple of years, since the onset of Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, this has provided, you know, a lot of opportunity for, you know, China to get its renminbi used uh, in exchange for oil. And also, you know, which is, you know, the other thing that people have to keep in mind is, you know, China and uh, the Saudis just had a recent local currency swap agreement. Um, so we're starting to see the renminbi used more widely. Could you explain to us what renminbi is, just for our listeners, we can, if you can put it simply for us? Yes. So renminbi, or the yuan, is China's uh, currency. In addition to the increased use of the Chinese currency, the renminbi, or the yuan, um, it, it's also you know interesting to, to play out the backdrop of what's happening in the U.S. with its U.S. treasuries and U.S. debt. China is now slowing its purchases of U.S. Treasuries, and for example, they're you know buying oil uh, for their own you know, reserves and other energy uh, reserves. Basically, the renminbi is now used as a freely usable currency, and um, so what we're starting to see is around the world uh, for petroleum reserves and other energy reserves and other commodities, an increased use of the renminbi rather than the US dollar as a anchor. Julian, you've put it simply for us. We appreciate your time greatly. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you, Ertham and Huzan. Uh, it's been a big pleasure uh, to be a guest on Put Simply. And I really appreciate uh, uh, the questions as uh, I was able to answer them and give a different perspective uh, uh, using a different lens. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And that's been this week's episode of Put Simply. I've been your host, Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrishim. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasts platform and follow Oroku Group on LinkedIn for all the up-to-date information. Until next time, thanks for listening.